Hmm. It's a delight to see you all. Thank you for being here. Slightly conscious there's gaps there, but there's really full over there, so I don't quite know what's going on today. Um, that's the way it is. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, I'm Martin Saunders. I'm the vicar of this place, and it's a delight to... Um, oh, I need that. Take us through this passage. We're going to look focus basically on the gospel passage, on the wedding feast one. Uh, and I want you to start by imagining that you're at work and a message comes. The chief wants to see you. Maybe that's the uh, chief executive or the head, executive head or whoever is your big kahuna. What do you do? Do you say, oh, I'm really sorry, I'm a bit busy. I'll, I'll be pleased to see you tomorrow at four o'clock. No. You get up. You straighten your tie, you make sure there's no biscuit crumbs on your suit, you, you, you check your hair, you, you, you walk along and, and you, you polish your shoes on the back of your trousers if you're a bloke like that, yes? Yes? However expensive your trousers are. Uh, and you get to her office to discover what's needed. Now imagine that that's you getting a request to join the chief executive and the senior leadership team for lunch. Do you say sorry? My lunch break is my time. I'll pass on that. Or do you accept and then actually turn up feeling it's a privilege? Now, we have a, a different view of monarchy in these days to those days of yore. Um, it used to be a feudal system, but since the Magna Carta of 1215 and then the restoration of the monarchy in 1660 and then, of course, the Reform Act of 1832. So the absolutist nature of the monarchy has been abandoned in favour of a democracy. So we find it hard to relate to that kind of lord feudal system, to the idea of a sponsor or a benefactor who has absolute power over some people. Unless, of course, you're a historian or you're keen on historic dramas such as, I don't know, Poldark or something like that. Um, it's worth remembering, though, that peasants make up 90% of the population, um, even though they're at the bottom of the pile. So you've got peasants, then knights, nobles, and king, and basically each one provides patronage uh, and sponsoring to the others. And nobody expects to be treated fairly or with justice, necessarily, in this kind of system. And uh, if you want to do something slightly uh, interesting, you could compare medieval feudalism with corporate feudalism. But I'm not going to go there today. Um, it uh, does uh, say something about the rich and powerful still in this world and how most of us are still at the bottom down here, everyone else. Uh, so let's just move on from that before I get too political. Um, oh, no. The, um, basically... The queen cannot say any longer, off with their heads, because the queen's lost power. And the command will not be acted on, even if the queen today were to say it, unlike in previous centuries here. I think the closest we do have is that powerful boss at work. But even then, we are protected by law around workers' rights, around unfair dismissal, around tribunals. And that was not a feature of first century Palestine, to which, of course, we turn. And the Matthew reading, then, we find Jesus telling a story with a meaning. That's a parable. And he told it about what the kingdom of heaven is like. Now... If you want to take this further, then um, there are similar versions of these uh, two 
the two halves of this parable in Luke's gospel. And if you want to read those and compare and contrast, you're welcome to do that. But not now, please. So the kingdom of heaven is like this, said Jesus. Oh, I'm going to tie, stay here. I'm sorry. Um, To Jesus' first century hearers, I suspect this would have been met with some humor, this story. Remember in Matthew's Gospel, we've just had, and we looked at these in previous weeks, two parables. One is the parable of the tenants in the vineyard and the way that they were replaced, having killed off the servants who claimed to collect the rent. And before that, there was the parable of the two sons with his comment to the chief priests uh, and the elders of the people. uh, Jesus said to them, I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of heaven ahead of you. That's you, the chief priests and the tax collectors. And, and so Jesus, I think, or the people listening, are in that mode of thinking that the bad guys in most of Jesus' stories are generally the chief priests, the leaders of the people, the Pharisees. So in this story then of the king and the wedding banquet for his son, the invited ones who don't come, I think it's reasonable to assume that they are also the chief priests, the leaders of the people, the Pharisees. For of course... The king wouldn't invite the ordinary people, the shepherds, the cooks, uh, and the common people to the wedding banquet of his son. He'd have invited the other movers and shakers. This would have been the chance for them to meet and to greet and to be nice to the future king, who indeed was their benefactor, who gave them the power that they had. And so they all turned away and refused the invitation. It's actually an act of rebellion of disloyalty, of saying we don't need the patronage of the king. We are so powerful that the king is unable to take our power from us. Except that king did. He responded by sending his destroying army. It was literally a case of serve me or die. Hmm. And this is a picture of the kingdom of heaven. Anyway, let's keep going. Um, Our attention then is brought back to the wedding feast. And so as not to waste the blessing of good food, so everyone else was invited. The Greek word used, um, she's somewhere on there, is... uh, Send some more servants. Oh, here we go. Um, go to the street corners and invite to the banquet. The street corners in, in Greek is literally the, 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 um, the streets, the... Lost my place. There you go, the streets. Gives the impression of the entry and exit points of the city. So if you like, the main thoroughfares. Um, and so, so the servants were sent out basically to find anybody they could who was out and about. And notice that the bad as well as the good, were invited. But that all were expected to respond appropriately in terms of wearing wedding clothes. Because, of course, everybody except one did wear wedding clothes. So there presumably was more than one bad in that group of the bad as well as the good that came. And even the bad wore wedding clothes except for one. So, I think there's something here about recognizing that we are all welcome at the wedding feast of the king, whether or not we regard ourselves as good or bad.
but we're all welcome if we wear the right clothes. And for clothes, I want to suggest to you it's something about attitudes. I'll explain to you why in a minute. Uh, In fact, just now. The bit about them being thrown out to where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, Matthew uses it, or Jesus uses it in Matthew's Gospel, in uh, multiple other places. And here are all those references. And... uh, Each time, it's about being thrown out, uh, and often uh, there's a reference to furnace. Um, It's used of the weeds of the field, um, of hypocrites, of bad fish caught up with the good fish in a net, um, and um, it's even used of that one. You remember the the talents where they had five bags of gold and two bags of gold and one bag of gold, and that one who had that bag of gold, he hid it in the ground. He was thrown out where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth too. Um, That's the bottom one. And I think all of those you can link to attitudes. Um, You know, you've certainly got the hypocrite um, who, presumably hypocrites are people who want to make you think something, but then on the inside are thinking something quite different. So the image that we have is that the good and the bad were invited, all but one person, as it were, had an attitude of gratefulness, of respect, and that included the bad as well as the good. And they showed that respect by wearing suitable clothes for the occasion, for the wedding banquet. And the one who didn't show respect, although probably more we could think of it as the one who chose to disrespect, the one who came effectively saying, I'm here because I was ordered to be here, but I don't want to be. I was told by their servants, you've got to come. And so he stomps along. Hi, Pam. Sorry, has it been a bad night? Um, Stomps along, and he is there, but with bad grace. You all know the sort, don't you? That turn up at a meeting and just clearly don't want to be there. We have it sometimes here on a Sunday morning, don't we? Where people kind of come with an attitude of of not engaging or perhaps of mocking, um, depending on the reasons why they've come. Even this morning we sang that song, didn't we? Bless the Lord, O my soul. It was an instruction to our souls to choose to engage with what's on offer. You might not have sung it like that, but that's what we sang in that opening chorus. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. That's an instruction on our lips to our souls to engage with the things of God. And sometimes we have to make that deliberate choice to set aside whatever else is going on, or probably better, to bring that to God with us and not let that distract us from the totality of what we're trying to do. Because we're here to worship, to learn from his word, to engage with all that God has to offer for us. So I kind of have to find myself saying... How are we doing? How are we doing? How are we doing at that attitude, at clothing ourselves with Christ? Um, I'll come back to that. Here you go. Paul talks about 
Clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. Do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. Do you daily choose to put on Jesus? But actually, there's also a question which you just saw there, which is that the man who was thrown out, he was sat with those at the wedding feast. He was amongst them, but somehow he wasn't of them. And that does beg a question, doesn't it, about for all of us, to just be sure, do you hang around with Christians, followers of Jesus, or are you actually a follower of Jesus? Because if you just hang around with other followers of Jesus, that won't get you to heaven. Having the right aura, if you like, the right people to hang out with, isn't enough. It's actually about a direct relationship with our amazing, wonderful God who loves us and cares for us and wants to put his spirit in each of us as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. Because we're forgiven, we're restored. So hanging about with Christians is a great start. But take the next step and choose to have a direct relationship with the Almighty too. So let's go back to that story. No, stay there for a minute. Let's go back to that story. You, where do you put yourself? Are you with that first round of invitees who say, no way, I'm not going to the wedding? I guess it's unlikely. Are you with the group then who beat up and killed the servants who came? Are you in the banquet, clothed in the appropriate attire and ready to tuck in? I wonder who's in the banquet but fears perhaps they've got the dress code wrong. You misread it slightly. And I suspect most of us slightly smugly put ourselves in the wedding banquet with the right clothes on. But I think it's worth checking our clothes again. Clothes that tell of attitude, of our heart response, of our our actions in response to the invitation of the Almighty to join him. You could, perhaps, and I think it stretches this parable a bit, but you could think of the time between getting the invitation and turning up at the wedding banquet... So that time when everybody who got the invitation went home and changed into their wedding clothes and then made themselves down to the palace, is that, you could think of perhaps as that time, as the time between us coming to faith in Jesus and death. Because the banquet is a something about, an, there is echoes of an eternal banquet uh, of the kind of stuff that we're going to get in heaven. So actually... The people that received the invitation had a deliberate choice to say, yes, I'm going to go to the banquet, but also I want to go home and get changed and clothe myself in the right clothes for the banquet. Now, in spiritual terms, that's about uh, uh, growing in faith. It's about growing in spirituality and godliness in godly response to his love for us. So let's focus that in, given we're in the midst of thinking about stewardship, on money. I wonder which of these three views are yours. Is it my money? I've earned it. 
And what I do with it is up to me. Well, yes, you could maybe say that, but did God did give you the brains and the health and the breath to be able to earn it. And if we live as if we don't have a patron, as in God, we live as if there's not someone who has the power over our own lives and therefore ends of our lives. So maybe we're a bit more along this line to say, it's my money and God's enabled me to earn it. And I think sometimes we can get ourselves into that, particularly when we think about tithing. You kind of think, I'll give God my 10% and then the rest of it's mine. I do what I want with it because I've done my bit for God. And that somehow, yeah, it releases the other 90% for me to spend on me, to be as worldly and as self-centered as everybody else is in this culture. How about much better... It's God's money, and God enabled me to earn it. Here's a quote from Solomon, way back in the Old Testament at the dedication of the temple. He said, Our God, we give you thanks and praise your glorious name, but who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? For everything comes from you, and we've only given you what comes from your hand. God has given you the brains the health, the privilege of living in this country that you get benefits, if that's where you're at. God has put you in this place at this time so that you have the resources you have. And everything we have comes from God. So perhaps it's better to say it's all God's. It's God's time. It's God's given health. It's God's given resources of money. My body is God's temple, so I'll look after it the best I can. God's provision for the whole of my life on this earth. So then how then can I best use all that I have so that by any means some might be saved? Because that's partly what we're about. We're about bringing others into the kingdom. We want to see this this place, but every place, full of people wanting to worship God. So I did ask earlier, are you in or are you near? If you're in, do you actually recognize that you owe your whole allegiance to the one who gave you life? That everything you have is God's, and it's all his anyway. Here's a quote from John Wesley. There was many possibilities here. But I thought I'd give you this one today. Do all the good you can, by all the means you can, in all the ways you can, in all the places you can, at all the times you can, to all the people you can, as long as ever you can. Do all the good you can, by all the means you can, in all the ways you can, in all the places that you can, at all the times that you can, to all the people you can, as long as ever you can live. As long as you ever can. As long as you ever, as long as ever you can. Don't forget he was single. So the question is, do you get it? John Wesley did. Do you truly live in the reality that it all belongs to God? Perhaps we should redesign the giving forms, some of which are at the back and some of which you had last week, some of which you've picked up and are are just sitting unopened in your seats. Um, Perhaps we should think about it a bit like that. Let's take my income, let's take away what I need to live on. And that's the biggest question, isn't it? What is need and what is want? And the rest I'll give to God. 
You need to compare that with the understanding that the tithe is the first call on resources rather than the leftovers. So don't take that as gospel. But it's just an interesting challenge, isn't it, to say just how much, how little do we need, really? That sort of reflects John Wesley's um, thinking about money. Because actually it all belongs to God. But it's not just money, is it? It's about everything. All of my time, all of my abilities, all of my resources, my housing. It's all possible to be used to God's glory and honour. Matt Redman wrote a song quite a long time ago. This is one of the middle verses of it, and I'm really still very challenged by it. I've given like a beggar, but I've lived like the rich and crafted myself a more comfortable cross. And yet we all know we're called to deeper than this. So perhaps it's time that God had it all. I'm going to give you time to listen to this in song because clearly me reading it doesn't really help you um, as well as listening. Um, And as you listen, just reflect on your own attitudes and actions and how it all works with God. Thanks, Kim. Yes, I resolve to give it all Some things must die some things must live Not what can I gain But what can I give If much is required And much is received Then you can have my whole life Jesus has Crafted myself a more comfortable cross Yet what I'm called to is deeper than this It's time you had my whole life You can have it all Yes, I resolve to give Some things must die, some things must live But what can I gain, but what can I give If much is required, and much is received And you can have my whole life Jesus has do you resolve to live? Just 
as you are, just take time to pray, to talk to God. Father, thank you that you called us to the eternal banquet in heaven, that you provide for us. Give us wisdom, we pray, to live our lives fully aware and responsive to all that you give to us. See, we pray.